He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So I'm not a big fan of small talk. I'm not a big fan of small talk. You know, I'd rather just you know, cut right to the heart of the matter. Uh, enough with all the, the little stuff. Let's get into some in-depth conversation. And so I appreciate the advice of a, a writer guy by the name of David Sedaris, who also is not a big fan of small talk. And his advice, his recommendation, is that we need to ask better questions. You find yourself in a small talk kind of situation, he says, we need to ask better questions. So for instance, he recounts this one time, he's in line at the grocery store, which is like the epicenter of small talk, right? And while he's in line, he suddenly gets this idea for a random question of the lady next to him. He says, when's the last time you touched a monkey? And she says, oh, can you smell it on me? A friend of mine has one of these questions, a really good question that gets to the heart of the matter. And the question is this. When he's talking to a friend, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, what he asks is, what are you praying for these days? What are you praying for these days? And if the answer is, well, I haven't been doing a lot of praying, that's a conversation to have. But many times when we talk about the things that we are praying, that we are laying before the Lord, it's those things that are heaviest on our heart, right? It's those things that we most want to see happen in our lives and in the world. And so to ask that question, what are you praying for, gets right to the heart of the matter of, of what someone else wants. Which is why it's such a profound privilege that with this morning's gospel, we get to overhear the prayers of our Lord Jesus. We get to eavesdrop on his conversation with the Father to find out what is it that Jesus most wants. What is it that's on his heart here in the upper room as he is facing down his death on the night before the crucifixion? What is it that's on Jesus' heart? And there's a lot that he talks about, but there's one thing that especially stands out for me. He repeats a particular word nine times, just in this passage. Nine times he uses the word world, referring to the world. And he's praying to the Father about our relationship, which is to say his disciples' relationship to the world. And when we talk about the world, this doesn't mean creation per se, God's good creation. When we talk about the world, I like the definition that I found from one scholar who says, when, we talk, when the scriptures refer to the world, it means that which is opposed to God, which God nevertheless loves. That which is opposed to God, which God nevertheless loves. It's a kind of shorthand for talking about all of, all of the systems, all the structures, all the people, all the, the ways in which this world tends to be arrayed against the forces of God. And so Jesus prays for us how we are to live faithfully in this world, but not of it. That formulation comes from, from this text, in the world, but not of it. And really, there's a paradoxical tension here. And if I could put it simply, the paradoxical tension is this. We are positively opposed to the world. We are positively opposed to the world. On the one hand, we are all for the world, positive, favorable toward the world. But also, and at the same time, on the other hand, we are all against the world, negative and contrarian. It's both of these things, fully 
at the same time. That's what it means for it to be a paradox. But the trick is to live in that tension and not just to fall off on one side or the other because that's where the real dangers lie. Instead, Christ Jesus has called you and me to live faithfully in this tension, in the world, but not of it, positively opposed. But human beings, being what we are, we don't really like tension. We just as soon get rid of it and it's a lot easier to fall off fully on one side or the other. So what I wanna do this morning is to more deeply examine this paradox Look at the ways that we can fall off on one side or the other with the hope that we might follow our Lord Jesus in living in that tension as people of hope. So what does it mean to be positively opposed to the world? Well, let's start over here and think about, okay, on the one hand, there's that temptation to be only all for the world only all for the world, to just emphasize the positive. And this is not only an understandable, but I think a laudable temptation when you look at our Lord Jesus as his own posture toward the world. For instance, you think of that most famous of verses, which we delved in depth on a couple of months ago. John three sixteen, right? For God so loved what? The world. The world. Yes. It doesn't say, for God so loved the good people. For God so loved Christians, so God, for God so loved believers, but for God so loved the world. And he didn't just love the world in an abstract sense. He didn't just have some nice feelings toward the world. But as the Lamb of God, he does what? He takes away the sin of the world. Takes away the sin of the world. This is the posture of our loving Lord, see? who even though this world is opposed to him, he nevertheless loves it. And so for you and me to have that kind of attitude, that to be for the world, for us to, to pick that up is to, to carry the melody of mercy, see? It's to carry the melody of mercy. But, and you knew there was a but coming, right? But, If that's all we have, if we are only all for the world, emphasizing the the goodness of the world and the way that things can go right, and while even though, yeah, it's kind of ugly, it's kind of bad, still, you know, we are for the world. If that's all you are, then you might have the melody of mercy, but still miss out on its tune. Your pitch might not be so good if you are leaving out the other half of it. See, we need to hold both of these sides together. Now, remember that definition that which is opposed to God, which God nevertheless loves. You can't forget that the world is also opposed to God. And if we are too quick to just turn a blind eye to all the ways that the world is wrong and contrary to God's purposes, and just instead try to just pat it on the head, well, we're kind of like, there's this cartoon or a meme that commonly goes around the internet, and it's a character, I think he's a dog, And he's sitting in a room that's on fire. And he's just sipping his coffee with a smile on his face, kind of one of these smiles, saying, everything is fine. You ever seen this? Everything is fine. If we are only all for the world, we end up like that silly character in the cartoon with everything on a flame around us and saying, everything is fine. Nothing to see here. But even more than that, and even more profoundly than that, we find ourselves in a position where we are not baptizing the world. In other words, bringing it to a place of death and resurrection, but instead we're just whitewashing the world. 
and its problems and its sins and the ways that it is continuing to be opposed to God. We turn into kind of jingos for the universe. My world, right or wrong. But think instead of how our Lord Jesus navigates this tension, see. I'm thinking of the instance when he encounters the woman who's been caught in adultery. And, you know, all of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're ready to pick up stones to stone her, right? And Jesus comes and he says to them, let those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. And One by one, they all drop their rocks. So then what does Jesus say? All right, go on your way. Just keep on doing what you're doing. This woman who had been caught up in the ways of the world. Is that what Jesus says? No. What he says is this. Is there anyone here to condemn you? No. Neither do I condemn you. He speaks forward that word of mercy. But then he says, go and sin no more. See, Jesus lives in both of that, that tension there of both being all for the world, all for these, these creatures of God who have been uh, wrapped in sin, but still being against the sin itself and saying, go and sin no more. When we live in that tension, being both all for the world and all against it, positively opposed, when we dwell in that tension, then we're no longer out of tune, but we are in harmony with the gospel. That's where we want to be. It sounds a lot better, see? Okay, so on the one hand, there's the one temptation with respect to our relationship to the world to be only all for the world, to become jingos of the universe and say, oh yes, everything is fine when it's not fine. God doesn't call us to turn a blind eye to the evils and the failures of our world, but to look full in the face, to call it for what it is, to live in that tension. But on the other hand, there's the, the opposite temptation where you only focus on the opposition, where you are only all against the world, an alien of the world, and saying, no, I don't want to have anything to do with this ugly, contaminated place. I will remain pure. Whenever we have that kind of attitude, we always seem to talk in a British accent. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but it's an understandable temptation in its own right if we just listen to Jesus' own prayer. Again, Jesus' words, I've given them your word, the Lord prays, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus says, the world hates my disciples, just as they have hated me. And so for you and me to hate the world, refuse to have anything to do with the world, well, isn't turnabout fair play? It's not like we're the first ones to do the hating. And furthermore, the scriptures also say that we ought not to be conformed to this world. Uh, St. James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So if we are befriending the world, if we're getting too buddy-buddy with the world, well, hey, look, that's not where we want to be either. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says that to be a Christian, it's all about making the right enemies. Well, when we hate the world... When we push back on the world, just like it pushes back on us, then aren't we making the right enemies? Yes and no. See, that world which is so opposed to God, we do need to push back on, even as it is pushing back on us. But understand, that which is opposed to God, God nevertheless loves. 
And so you and I remain opposed to it, but not spitefully, but positively. You might think of it like this. Look, if you are, uh, if there's the shipwreck, okay? You don't do any good if you can't swim and you jump in alongside all the other people in the water. You're not going to save them, right? That's what it's like if we are only all for the world. We say, oh yes, I identify with you. I empathize with you. I'm diving in with you and I am lost just like you. We need to be apart from the world. We need to stay in the lifeboat, see? The lifeboat of forgiveness, the lifeboat of, of life in Christ's church, the lifeboat of forgiveness. We need to stay apart from the world and so in that boat. But understand, our purpose of being in the boat, of being apart from the world, is not so that we can paddle away as far as possible. You poor suckers, good luck! <laughs> no, we are in the lifeboat for the life of the world. Something else our Lord Jesus said. We are there, separated from the world for the sake of the world, so that now our sinking neighbors, this sinking culture, this sinking society actually has something firm to grab onto. You with me? And so we are living in that tension of being both all for the world and all against the world at the same time, even as our Lord Jesus the light who came into the world, that light always distinct from the darkness, but always shining in the darkness. That's the place that we are called to. Both of those things at the same time, positively opposed. So that might cause you to wonder, where does that leave us? What, what kind of attitude should we have? Or sometimes I get asked this question, Pastor, as Christians, should we be optimists or pessimists? Hmm. The optimists sit up at the front of church, the pessimists sit in the back. No. <laughs> Which should it be? Well, neither. And both. And something else altogether. Let me explain. I take my lead from the late Admiral Jim Stockdale. And some of you will remember Jim Stockdale. Unfortunately, he kind of is best known among some people as being the vice presidential candidate with Ross Perot. But long before that, he was the highest ranking military officer who suffered under, with torture in the Hanoi Hilton, what was called the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War. For more than seven years, Admiral Stockdale was there being tortured, okay? You just imagine, how, how did he survive that? How did he get through it? What, what was it that sustained him? And more to the point, who was it that didn't make it? Well, Admiral Stockdale was asked this question once in an interview. Who was it that didn't make it out of the Hanoi Hilton? And his answer is kind of surprising. He didn't even uh, hesitate for a moment, but he says, those who didn't make it out were the optimists. You say, wait a second, what? The optimists, they're not the ones that made it out, didn't make it out? The, well, wait a second, oh, the glass is half full, the torture is bad, but... It could be worse, right? He says, look, the optimists are the ones who would keep on saying, hey, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come, and they still wouldn't be out. Hey, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and they'd still be stuck. And Thanksgiving would come, and they would say, maybe this Christmas? And he says, ultimately, they would die not of torture, but of a broken heart. So then you say, okay, pessimists then. We need to be pessimists. And Admiral Stockdale would say, no, 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 no. 
You couldn't be a pessimist either because you needed to retain that faith in what he says was the end of the story. Believing that the end of the story is a happy one. And if you don't hold on to that, if you're just a dire, fatalist, pessimist, well, that would break you too. So where would that leave us? He said, you would need to keep both of these things at the same time. You would have to confront the brutal facts of reality. Friends, we are in torture, we are in prison, and we might not make it out. But also, and at the same time, he said, keep a boundless faith in the future, trusting that the story will end well. Now, Admiral Stockdale was a man of faith. And you can hear in his own paradox there a kind of brutal hopefulness, you might say. That's where we live. We're brutally hopeful. We are absolutely against the world and all of its sin and all of its rebellion and all, all of its opposition from God. We can't help but face those brutal facts of reality. But also, and at the same time, we are endlessly, boundlessly hopeful. We're not pessimists. We're not optimists. We are people of hope. People of hope. Not for this world in its present fashion or form, but in God, the God who holds history in his hands, who ultimately has the victory, who has told us ahead of time the end of the story and that it ends well. And so we can live joyfully, hopefully, right where he wants us, in this world, but not of it. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.